The following commentary does not necessarily reflect the views of the staff and management of WBCA or Boston Neighborhood Network. If you would like to express another opinion, you can address your comments to Boston Neighborhood Network, 3025 Washington Street, Boston, Massachusetts, 02119. To arrange a time for your own commentary, you can call WBCA at 617-708-3241 or you can email radio at bnntv.org. I have a problem every year around MLK Day because Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for some reason has been treated as America's civil rights mascot. On this day, you'll have folks who would have never in their life marched with, agreed with, voted with anything he believed in. One of the biggest bigots in the United States Congress. He had the audacity to send out. March and resist. Pump your fist. Wave your hand in the air just like this. I want to thank my really, really good friend, Aaron T. Lee, former bass player for a band, a couple of bands I was in, actually. That is his song. That is his mantra. That is his thing. And that is ours. He actually just let me know a couple of uh, weeks ago he's got a new song and everything. So we will be changing the opening to this program. In case you don't know where you are, you're on another level. I'm your host and producer of this program on another level. My name is Sharon Hinton. I am awaiting the arrival of my guest who has never been late. I hope he's okay. Edwin Sumter is producing for the second year uh, the MLK Readers. There are 100 people that show up on City Hall Plaza, and they read part of a Martin Luther King speech. And this is his second year of producing it, but Kevin Peterson, who is the founder and director, executive director, I believe, of the New Democracy Coalition, um, you may know his name and be familiar with him. He has been trying to get the name of Faneuil Hall changed. Peter Faneuil was a slaveholder who marketed the slaves, built his wealth in slaves, and slave, enslaved people's labor, free labor. And that money, a lot of that money was used to purchase Faneuil Hall. And so Kevin Peterson has been campaigning, I want to say even through the pandemic, so it's been several years now, to get a hearing on changing the name of Faneuil Hall, which, you know, there's a lot of money down there. And it's not just about changing the name, but it's also about redirecting and reallocating resources that come through the seaport come through Faneuil Hall, um, built on the backs of black people and black people and people of color are not benefiting from the economy down at Seaport and down at Sea Hall and downtown. So my name is Sharon Hinton. Um, this next piece you're about to see, uh, it happened last week. And so the memorial and the uh, homecoming of um, former state representative and former mayoral, can mayoral candidate Mel King was put to rest last week. And I saw this piece, it wasn't produced by us, and um, about the life and legacy of Mel King. So there's gonna be two Kings we're talking about tonight, Mel King and Martin Luther King, here on another level with your host, Sharon Hinton. Don't go anywhere, get a pen and pencil, and just look at this information that you may not know about.
Melvin Herbert King has spent most of his 55 years living in the south end of Boston. His wife, Joyce, grew up just doors away. And together, they raised six children in this modest three-story brick house, now in the shadow of Copley Place. Mel King is now campaigning to become the city's first black mayor. It seems that he was destined to be a politician. King says he won his first election at age 14 as a member of a community council that cited unlicensed shoe shiners and paper peddlers. King's family home once sat on this location, now occupied by the Boston Herald. Um, it was very interesting because when I was at college, my folks sent me clippings from the Traveler that done a series, and it indicated that I'd lived on Skid Row. As far as I was concerned, it was home, but it was very disturbing to read in this newspaper that uh, they were labeling uh, where I had lived and grown up uh, in a community with a lot of richness and diversity as Skid Row. Uh, but it's part of the process because they gave the community a negative image, and then after giving it a negative image, they set it up so that they could come in and do what they wanted with it. Mel King received his Bachelor of Science degree at Claflin College in South Carolina and a master's degree from Boston Teachers College. John Bino, owner of the century-old Professional Businessman's Club, has been a close friend of Mel King's for 25 years. Mel was a quiet, uh, very thoughtful, always a very uh, deep-thinking person. Uh, he uh, always cared about people, particularly when he first came back from college and was working with street youth. To know him is to trust him. Mel King is a first-generation American. His father came to Boston from Guyana and his mother from Barbados. King went to Boston Technical High School where he played basketball and aspired to be a musician playing the saxophone. His wife Joyce says music is still his passion. And he's quite often will stop at uh, Wally's on Mass Avenue on a, usually on a Sunday evening quite often just to listen for about a half an hour or so. Uh, because students from the Berkeley School of Music come down there on the weekends and play. So that would be his main, <coughs> his main outlet for relaxation. Oh, tennis! I'm sorry, I forgot tennis. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he would dive in and take tennis also. King and his wife yeah. have been married for 32 years. Their six children range in age from 16 to 31. A warm, friendly woman, Mrs. King chooses to stay out of the limelight. Her main interest lies in working with teachers to remove stereotypes from classroom materials. Well, you know I'm not going to forget Joyce King, so don't get anxious. When there are cameras around, I will move to the rear. I just feel that it's much better that whatever the reporter needs, that he needs to get it from the candidate. Can you talk a little bit about Mel as a father? I think the children would say that I was stricter than he was. <laughs> um, his way of disciplining, and, and I do it too, but he really uh, believes in it is, uh, um, and practices it without fail, is one of talking to the children. And then he leaves, and so for me it was a little bit of a, of a conflict because then he would talk to the children and then say, now it's up to the child to decide whether or not they're going to behave the next time. Around. What did you want to do? I thought I wanted to say, now this is what you do. <laughs> One, two, three. Mel King Jr. agrees with his mother about discipline in their home. A teacher by training, the younger King now works full time for his father's campaign. And growing up, he, you know, they gave us, you know, their values of uh, what was right and what was wrong, okay? And there were certain things that there wasn't any compromise on. 
People who know Mel King well describe him as a warm person. But he has long suffered with an image problem, caused in large part by his once unconventional dress and his stern demeanor. But his wife Joyce says King's public image is misleading. He has a sense of humor and a, and a great uh, um, ability to enjoy life. And uh, so that I'm not sure what people are asking for when they say that he should smile more, except that maybe from a, a visual kind of thing. Chris Hayes is a South End native who has known Mel King all his life. Young people really looked up to him, and it didn't matter if they were black or white or Chinese or, or whatever nationality, seemed to be able to have a rapport, and he with them. Mel King has tasted victory, and he's known defeat. Friends say King is not in politics for himself, but out of commitment to the city. And who does Mel think he is? A person who feels very good about himself, uh, who has a sense of uh, purpose in a direction. Former mayoral candidate, state representative, Mel King, Melvin King, um, 94 years old, young, passed away, and there's an African proverb that says, when we lose an elder, we lose a library, and we're losing them. And one of the reasons that, now Mel King actually wrote a book, Chain of Change, and so there is a book, I, as a faculty member at Springfield College School of Human Services, there was a class that I taught that was um, a four-semester class, issues, issues in Research, and um, a three-semester class that was um, around participatory action research. So basically, you're doing something in the community, and you're also researching it. Um, and I taught at Springfield College for 18 years. So uh, Project and Community Development and Social Change and Chain of Change, uh, Mel King's book, was one of the books that we use for the curriculum and it talks about organizing, step-by-step -step organizing in the community. Years ago I met Kwame Ture, aka Stokely Carmichael, the brother who is credited with black power in the 60s, that statement, although it was uttered by other people and he was one of the leaders and founders of, the, of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And so that was one of the groups along with CORE and the NAACP was fighting for people, black people, African-Americans in this country to get the right, of vote, right to vote in civil rights uh, struggles. And he eventually um, moved to Africa and that's where he passed away. So when we're talking about, and by the way, Mel King's wife is still here, God bless you, and his children are still here. The technology center that he founded and Tent City is still here. So there are institutions, there are entities that he helped to um, develop, to foster, to found that you can still. So when you say, oh, that's horrible, I didn't really know him or I knew him and what can I do now? That's what you can do now. This is um, in April that we're airing this show. It's live tonight, but it will be rerun again. Um, and it's starting to get warm outside. Someone today asked me, did you hear about the shooting in Hyde Park? No, I didn't, but now I've heard about it. Unfortunately, in the summertime, as the weather gets warmer, if you're living in the city in Boston, 
it's almost like you're expecting the murder rates and the shootings to uptick. <sighs> I'm asking everyone who is a praying person to pray against that spirit of murder and death and violence in our community this year. I know as you and I go out um, post-COVID, everybody is trying to get out and be around people and um, get back some form of normalcy without the masks, without the COVID shots, without all the testing. COVID is still getting people sick. It is still killing people, not in the numbers that it was, but we still have to be aware of what's going on. There are still people with uh, compromised immune systems who are susceptible to getting sick. Um, there are people that I know that were vaccinated and boosted and they still got sick, but they didn't die. And I know friends, uh, family members of friends of mine who died, their mothers, their grandparents, their uncles, cousins, different things. So as we go out and we're hobnobbing and, you know, being around everybody, you still need to be mindful of the fact that, that COVID is still out there and it's still killing people and still making people sick. Um, so that was Mel King. Uh, Mel King and his family knew me all my life. I know his kids, I know his wife. And my father, who was a civil rights icon, um, designated an icon, we didn't think of him that way. We thought of him as our dad, is one of the 65 civil rights leaders that were recognized in the memorial, at the memorial of the Embrace downtown. Um, I didn't know that and that there was a whole, um, I found out about it after the process had happened, after they had supposedly contacted family members. I'm the oldest person in the Eaton family. They did not contact me. And some of the narrative that is on the website is incorrect. So I have reached out to Amari Paris Jeffries and his staff to correct that because if that's going to be historical a narrative that's going to stand for time, password gone, it needs to be correct. Um, I can only speak about me and my family. I'm not sure um, with the difficulties they may have had reaching all these other people, but I appreciate them recognizing my father, who was one of three men murdered on Blue Hill Avenue in 1968. And um, so I appreciate his name being on a plaque. And there's been debates going back and forth whether or not they should actually put down the name and whatever the person did. And so the argument that was given to me is like, oh, no, that'll make people go look it up. Maybe, maybe not. But I think for those people who are slow and don't know, they should have put down, you know, Jean McGuire, first black woman in the Boston School Committee. He spent $10 million on that, embra on that Embrace Memorial thing. I think somewhere in those $10 million, you could have put down the name of the person and then what they were noted for. Just saying, um, my guest, I don't know, I hope he's okay. And we're talking about things happening to people. I wanna open up the phone lines tonight. We're gonna talk about Martin Luther King. We're gonna talk about Mel King. Um, and tell me what you think people in Boston, black people in Boston should do now. We're losing all these people. Sarah Ann Shaw was there. Um, and there, you know, the, the wake and the funeral was a time for a lot of people to come together, there were a lot of elected officials, there were community people there, family people there, there were hundreds. Um, on, on Monday for the wake for four hours, actually went longer than four hours, and there was a community speaking session that was for about two hours where people came up and they told stories about Mel King and about the family. And then the next day was a funeral that was about three, three and a half, four hours. I didn't go to the funeral. Um, I didn't, sorry. I heard about it, it was live streamed, and so there it is. 
COVID. There it is. I, I just, to me, um, as a Christian, I look at what we call homegoing, the homecoming, as a celebration of life. And, um, but that hasn't always been my experience, going to people's homegoings or funerals and stuff like that. And after being at the wake and the viewing the day before, it was just, it was, um, it was a lot. Because the last time I had been at that church, the Union United Methodist Church in the South End, we lost our dear sister Lolita. Lolita was a producer here at BNN TV, and she died of cancer. And so I was a little bit traumatized by trying to enter that church again. There's just a lot of emotions. However, we have people that are here amongst us who maybe don't have a plaque on Boston Common or a plaque or certificate, and they are doing the work. I want to give a shout out to, to, to Slim Weathers, young brother, feeding the hood. He's been doing that. He has his own business. Um, I want to give a shout out to Cindy Diggs, Peace Boston. She's been doing that, you know, queen of hip hop in Boston. There are people that you may not know about, but they are doing the work, trying to help people, save people's lives. Domingos DeRosa. Domingos ran for city councilor, at life city councilor three times. I worked with him on his campaign. And this brother is sincere. And so, you know, we have elected officials. This is an election year for the city council position. Frank Baker, who is um, District 4, I believe, Dorchester Southie, is, is, has declared that he's not going to be running for re-election. So people are going to come out in that area. That's a strong voting district. Um, there are decisions that are being made as we speak this week. The city budget, which the city council actually strengthened their voice on the city budget, not just a rubber stamp for the mayor. Um, the school committee budget, there are hearings that are open to the public. Notably, they're during the day. Not all of them. School committee, Boston School Committee is at night. And so you can testify. You can talk about your experience. You can weigh in on some of these issues, and hopefully they'll be taken into consideration where the money should be spent. Where was the money spent? For those of you that don't know, there were $430 million of ESSER funds that the federal government released to Boston, not Massachusetts, to Boston to try to repair the Boston Public Schools from COVID, from the effects of COVID. Learning loss, 60% um, of the buildings being built around World War II and not being ready for the pandemic in terms of ventilation, uh, windows, safety, that kind of stuff. There are conversations going on now about school safety. Some of you may have heard about incidents that have happened in the school with weapons or around the schools, not all the schools, with weapons. If you have children or grandchildren or neighborhood children in these schools, weigh in and tell them what you think. Do you think police should be in the schools? Should they be back in the schools? Should you have um, restorative justice? Do you know what that is? What is the code of conduct? Reports have showed and research has showed that black students, especially dark-skinned students, are suspended and dismissed and um, kicked out of school more than anybody else. The school to prison pipeline, pipeline is real. Back in the day, all of our kids, all of the kids were our kids. Um, and we looked out. We need to get back to that. Because if we're not educating our kids, then we're not training our young people to be able to take over for when we're not here, to be able to do these jobs, to be able to be innovative, be the inventors, the scientists, the creative geniuses that we know that they are. And for those of us who have been here for a little bit, remember how long, 
It really didn't take you that long to get where you are, and everybody didn't make it. Some people went to sleep last night and didn't wake up this morning. If you're still here, then you still have a purpose. And how are you going to make things better for you, for your family, for your community, for your country? I'm not going to get up here and wave a flag or anything like that. But I just want you to think reparations is being discussed across the country. And you don't have to be African-American to weigh in on that. Do you think African-Americans should be getting reparations? This young man that was just killed um, doing nothing, basically, he was picking up his brothers, went to the wrong house and got blown away and shot. Stuff is still happening. How do you feel about that? Do we have a caller? Yes, we have a caller now. Tell me your name, where you're calling from, and uh, what your questionary comment is. Hi, um, my name is Shazak Akwe. I'm calling from Brockton. You're calling from where? And, um, Brockton. Brockton, okay. Um, I just have a question for you. Do you know why uh, prayer was taken out of school? Do I know why prayer was taken out of schools? Of course, you can Google it. But um, yes, because there was a, a group of atheists and specific you know, people that took it to court and said that we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be forced to um, practice a certain religion and say that we believe in God. Um, I'm old enough to remember <laughs> when they forced us to do that. You had to pledge allegiance to the flag and say a prayer every morning. My father forbid me and my brothers to pledge allegiance to the flag. He told us that I'm not having my kids pledge allegiance to a country that treats them like a second-class citizen. And so I was going to school in the 50s and the 60s, and my father was a black nationalist. And so the prayer was taken out of schools because there was an agenda, it still kind of is an agenda, to um, use the constitutional rights of separation of church and state. Even though, if you look at the founding so-called fathers of this country, um, and if you look in courthouses and everything, and you even look on the dollar bill, in God we trust. And so it's, it's a little bit hypocritical. Why do you think, what is your opinion about not having prayer in the schools? Are you still there? Did you go? He left. Um, so that's, um, that, was, that was an interesting call. That wasn't really what we were talking about. But anyway, you're here on another level. My name is Sharon Henson. We'll be taking phone calls around the MLK readers. Um, my illustrious director, Katie is going to show you some of the, um, I think there's still slots open to become a reader. You don't have to be a famous person. Um, it's, he's looking for 100 people to read. You read a segment down in City Hall Plaza, um, and then you're a group of people that actually commemorates uh, Martin Luther King. And in May, Malcolm, May 19th. So I'm a, <laughs> my name is Sharon Hinton. I'm your host here. I don't know where my guest is. I hope he's okay. Um, take a look at this piece that Martin Luther King, there's a lot of speeches, and this is, this is the speech, a piece of the speech, a longer speech, on the, mountain, on the mountaintop, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Take a listen. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. 
I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Martin Luther King, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, cut down. Some would say the prime of his life, he was in his 30s. Malcolm was in his 30s. My father was in his 30s. Um, we never really know what would have happened if they weren't killed, murdered. Uh, Martin Luther King's family literally went to court, took the federal government to court, U.S. government to court, and won, and showed that the federal government colluded and actually set up Martin Luther King to be murdered. His mother was also assassinated, and his brother. A lot of people don't know that, that there were other members of his family, not just him. His mother was actually in church when she was murdered. That's deep. And then Malcolm X, um, this past week, last week, Ilyasa Shabazz, who is one of the daughters of Malcolm X, um, actually had a uh, speaking engagement at Bunker Hill Community College. So I've seen her. And then I also got to meet and see um, one of Martin Luther King's, actually two, I met two of Martin Luther King's daughters. Uh, one recently and then one way, way, way back in the day. I met Yolanda King, who is Ma Martin Luther King's oldest daughter, and uh, Adela Shabazz, who was Malcolm X's oldest daughter. I was on the radio at that time and a student at Northeastern University, and they needed someone to open up. They both did a play together, and they were showing the play at the Strand Theater, and they needed someone to open up. So I ended up opening up the play for them and introducing the two of them and talking to them backstage, which was momentous. And then I met, um, I met Martin Luther King's younger daughter, and, and I didn't meet Malcolm's youngest daughter, but I saw her speech this last Thursday at um, Bunker Hill Community College. So it's interesting when you look at the legacies that people have left in terms of their families. Many times these men weren't um, in the home. They were traveling and other people were pulling on them. And so the, the mothers, the wives, uh, were responsible for raising these kids. Uh, Dr. Betty Shabazz, um, Dr. Coretta Scott King, um, I also met Merle Evers, who is, um, oh my God, when I think of the people that I've met, uh, I should be writing a book right about now. But before I do that, I've got another phone caller here. Can you tell me your name, where you're calling from, and your question or your comment, please? If you're calling from Washington, I'd like to make your comment. Okay. I must respectfully push back a little bit. It's not the so-called school-to-prison pipeline is more about the home-to-prison pipeline because last time I checked, it's the home that incubates the, the child along with where it's a parent or single parent, not the school. The school is the extension of the parent or, or parents. So also, for the boss of the schools, it has been such a mess since Michelle Wu took over. That is, I don't, I don't have an answer on how to fix it, but 
but my observation is not going to get better until we go back to an elected school committee, not an appointed one, no? because it has proven that it was disastrous, and so far the parents haven't demanded, well, there they was a vote the last election cycle for the city councilors, and so far nobody for the city council is pushing for that vote to be materialized. So, so, so um, and I want you to stay on the line with me for a second, right? So the um, Mayor Flynn, at the viewing of Mel King, he was there with his wife. And Mayor Flynn was the one who flipped it from elected school committee to um, appointed school committee. And then three months later, he said he regretted his decision and that he thought it should be reviewed. But he was there a couple of weeks ago on that Monday and I saw him. So I said, well, tell me, uh, you know, you were the one that started it and then you wrote a letter saying that you regretted it. Where do you stand now on the elected versus appointed school committee? And he said to me, he wasn't sure now. Now he was rethinking it. Okay. 99,000 plus voters at the last election voted for an elected school committee and Mayor Wu is ignoring that. That's more people that voted for anybody, including her. So, and you said that it's, it's gotten worse since Mayor Wu is there. In what way? Because um, she is the person that's responsible for everything and everybody works for her. And she appoints the school committee. She appoints the, um, well, she's intimately involved and she hires the superintendent, even though the superintendent reports to the school committee. But she's the one that signs the contract, and the school committee signs the contract and actually does the review of the, you know, the performance evaluation of the superintendent. Mary Skipper is the current superintendent, um, who was a former superintendent in Somerville. A school system with 7,500 kids versus a school system in Boston that has used to have 5,200 kids, 52,000 kids, I'm sorry, but now it has like 49,000. So we're losing students and losing parents. What do you, you know, you said it should be an elected school committee. Do you remember when the school committee was elected? Do you remember that? That's a long time ago. So yes, you do, and no, you don't. <laughs> so, you, so why do you think it should be an elected school committee? I mean, Boston is the only school committee in Massachusetts that's not elected, but how do you think things would be better if it was elected? You still there? I'm still here. So how do you think things, the school committee and the school department would be better if the school committee was elected? Again, I don't have the answer, but this is just my opinion. And it goes back to the basics. The parents must demand and get more involved in their kids' lives and also on the educational side with the bottom of the schools because, again, ignoring the problem isn't going to go away until the parents can stand up like grown adults, both the single parent and parents, and demand the mayor, the superintendent, everybody else in the educational side to give these kids a real, decent, uncompromising education. Then it's not going to get any better. Okay, thank you so much for your comments. And I'm actually involved in a, in a committee um, that is actually working on that. That was actually the committee that um, 
is still behind the Home Rule petition, along with uh, City Councilor Julia Mejia. Okay, thank you. City Councilor Julia Mejia and Ricardo Arroyo, who co-sponsored the Home Rule petition to um, have an elected versus uh, appointed school committee. And because the mayor did not, uh, the, the city council supported it, um, the mayor did not. And so everybody has to go back to the drawing board and people stay tuned. It would have, that vote would have been a real vote, a binding referendum on the election this year if the mayor hadn't, if the mayor had not, if the mayor had, had, had agreed to it, but she didn't. And so she's continuing to negotiate with DESE, which is Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, and also the superintendent and the school committee to do what she thinks is best to make the schools better. We're going to take a short break, and we're going to talk about the People's Academy and Technical Vocational Education. My guest was here the last time. It was T. Michael Thomas, Too Much Talent Thomas. And we talked about education and the importance of a technical vocational education, especially in light of what is happening with students coming out with horrendous debt. And the student debt cancellation that Biden talked about during his campaign is still being batted around back and forth between the Supreme Court and the different courts and the Biden administration. My name is Sharon Hinton. I am the producer and the host here on Another Level. Pay attention to this information. New at six, helping the incarcerated, homeless, and hopeless turn their lives around. One man is making it his mission to teach trades to help stop gun violence. WBZ's Paul Burton introduces us to a student whose life has been dramatically changed. Inside a triple-decker home in Dorchester, copper and sheet metal are being cut, bent, and hammered. But more importantly, young lives are being saved, shaped, and changed for the better. Teach them a trade so that they can make an honest living and put the guns down. T. Michael Thomas, better known as the Copper Man, is a welder, sheet metal, and coppersmith worker by trade. This is cornice work. His house is not only his own workshop. These are our lighthouses. But it's also his museum. This is a boat right here. Of amazing pieces of art that he created himself. It's the Leonard Zakem Bridge. The Boston native learned how to weld and work with sheet metal when he was in high school and entered the union after he graduated. I question often why aren't there more black and brown people and women involved into the union. And one of the things they said to me was that we don't have the time to train them. Why don't you do it? And that's exactly what he did, converting his home into the People's Academy, a nonprofit that serves as an apprenticeship training program for any city residents and making them employable. We teach them how to fabricate and install historic metal that they can take care of their family, their community, and the economy. Some of the students have been incarcerated and looking for a fresh start. Their focus is getting young people off the streets and providing them a career. Here, they call it trades, not triggers. The People's Academy craftsmanship can be seen all over historic Boston. Sean Andre entered the People's Academy in 2017 after bouncing from job to job trying to raise a child. When I actually came into this program and actually got to use the tools to actually like see what I can build with tools, I was really good at it. I was focused out and I loved it. He's excelled in the program and says it's given him a sense of accomplishment. I feel better about myself knowing that I can go 
work on a building next door and my name would be on it. Being able to show my son that I'm able to take care of him and take, be a man and handle my responsibility. For the past 15 years, the program has impacted more than 2,500 students. But Thomas says he hopes to get funding for a new building that will provide affordable housing and training space. It's an investment for public safety, homelessness, joblessness, street violence in particular. And knowing that like I can pass this trade on to my son, if we can get the funding to make the school go up, that's gonna be like a, a huge step. Until then, he will continue to mold and shape both the copper and his students with care and compassion. In Dorchester, I'm Paul Burton, WBC News. And thank you, Paul Burton and WBC News, BC News, and that segment that they did on People's Academy, which is in Dorchester, there is some land that has been designated by former Mayor Marty Walsh that is on the corner of Warren and Quincy Streets. It's a, there's a, used to be an old firehouse, it's now the Roxbury Multi-Service Center. Um, but the, the vacant land behind it and on the side of it is land that's been designated for the People's Academy. And T. Michael Thomas and the People's Academy are in the process of fundraising to build out the plans that they have a multi-use multi building that actually has artist residence, um, uh, manufacturing space, uh, design space, um, teaching space, and also a gallery to be able to be in this building. I saw the building, I saw the drawings of the building. The building's absolutely beautiful, and it would absolutely be a wonderful addition to the educational landscape of Boston because you have this black man from Boston who has been working on this effort for 15 years. And so when you see other schools, <clears throat> which I won't name because I don't want to get sued, and um, I don't think they need any publicity, but you have other schools that are um, touting to be you know, technical vocational gurus, um, and they may or may not be addressing the issues of the community. Um, I remember, I'm showing my age now, that in elementary school, in Boston Public Schools, you had home economics and you had shop. Every school had a shop, at least the ones I went to had shop. And so at an early age, you knew as a student, you didn't have to go to college. It was an alternative. You could work with your hands. You could make a, a wonderful living, support a family, and pay your bills and buy a house and everything and create generational wealth by being in a trade. My grandfather was a contractor, and he was also a welder, an electrician, and a plumber and a carpenter. And so he ended up being a general contractor and putting all that and started his own company that employed my brothers and, and his son, my uncle. And so we have gotten away from, I think, we've gotten away from teaching people how to work with their hands and that that's an honorable um, vocation to actually work with your hands. For those homeowners who've had to pay a plumber or an electrician or some kind of tradesman, you know it's not cheap. It is not cheap. It is definitely needed. It's not about robots coming down into your basement and fixing your overflowing toilet. You need a person. And you need a person that knows what they're doing that's going to save you um, headaches and troubles and money, hopefully. And so we are not replacing that population. T. Michael Thomas is the leading copper artist in the country, black man, in the country. And so in Boston and a lot of the major cities, these buildings are crumbling. They were built a long time ago. And if they're designated historic, then you have to replace whatever it is that you're doing the way it was, the way it was built. You have to restore it. Um, and so you have to do it the same way that it was done sometimes with the older techniques. So I'm, I'm pubbing 
the People's Academy and Technical Vocational Education. I myself went to Wentworth Institute and took welding classes and, be, and, and was on my way to being a welder because it was a lot of money, but then I got tired of getting burnt by the sparks and the metal and the flames. So I stopped doing that, but I'm still a teacher. To push back at what the last caller said about the school to prison pipeline, the reason why it's called school to prison, he did bring up a great point of um, your first teachers in your home, whoever is, it's, it's a parent, grandparent, elder person, whatever. Um, but the schools have our kids in there for a long period of time. And, it's, and the, you don't normally, unless you are a cop, have a cop in your home. I mean, you may be the, the, the law enforcement and stuff in your home, but that doesn't necessarily come with powers that can lock you up or that can put you away in jail, can incarcerate you. The schools, <laughs> the schools um, in, this, in, the, in the police that are in the halls of some of these schools can. As teachers and educators, you're a mandated reporter. So if something is happening to threaten the life, the livelihood, the health and wealth of one of your students, then you're mandated to report that. Like, you have to report that. And if you do that, then you don't necessarily know what happens with that child services, protective services, or um, the police. I have seen police come into schools and arrest students. There have been incidents um, when, when the immigration um, fear was at its height, where there were IMS, INS um, immigration security coming into the schools or waiting outside of the schools for people's parents and kids that, did not, that were undocumented citizens. So the school to prison pipeline is acknowledging that there is a particular track and a particular mentality that is too willing to put black and brown students in line to go to jail and not to be educated. So that's what that term school to prison pipeline is. And yes, the family and the neighborhood um, and society absolutely have a piece in it, but that's why that was coined um, the school to prison pipeline. Um, we've got like 15 more minutes. Um, I wanna talk about organizing and actually doing something. I understand people are tired and burnt out and trying to get, make a new normal so they can take the stress and everything off their lives. If COVID did anything when it came to students, when the, as opposed to the students being in the classroom, they were in the home. And then we got to find out whether or not there was a designated area to study. If there was a designated area that could be used as a classroom, as an extended classroom when students were on Chromebooks and on Zoom? Was there a place that was safe for them in their homes? Some people were going to school to get out of an unsafe environment in their homes. And so when Zoom came in and people were being taught in their houses, we started seeing things in the homes that you couldn't hide anymore. People cussing, swearing, fighting, smoking, whatever, ignoring, rejecting, all of that other stuff was happening. Um, and because everything else is shut down, where people were being socialized and meeting other people and getting the support, church, school, basketball teams, cheerleading teams, um, you know, a community, like everybody was in the house and was shut down. Now it's opened up. And there are generations of kids that were born during the pandemic that weren't necessarily socialized by going to daycare or going to school. There are young people that came into their adolescence at a time when you're trying to fit in and find out what tribe you're from that didn't get a chance to do that. And then we open up the schools and they're all back in the schools. And so some of the same beefs, some of the th same things that were stressing people are still stressing people. People have been forced to go back to work 
and don't want to. They found the benefits of being, you know, working remotely. I mean, I lost count in how many times I was trying to get a four-day work week and you can't do it, we can't do it. COVID came and all of a sudden, boom, they could do it. So the hypocrisies of a lot of different, you know, capitalists and corporations and stuff also came to light. Um, how are you feeling about the summertime? How are you feeling about what's available for our young people? Um, how are you feeling about what do you think is going to happen this summer in the neighborhoods? What can we do to stem the violence and the shootings in our neighborhoods? What can we do? What can we do in, an inter, in, inter, um, in a family situation, in the neighborhood situation? Because schools don't get out until June. This is only April. What can we do as members of the community, as parents, grandparents, um, teachers, educators, business people, community people, what do you think that some of the things that we can do so that we live our best life and so that we make this world better? Um, as an educator, I know a lot of teachers leaving the profession and thinking twice about joining the profession. They're getting burned out. There's not enough teachers. There are not enough. You can say that we should have social emotional people there, but if you can't hire them or the people that you hire feel like they're in a hostile work environment or they're being burned out, they're not being paid enough, they're not being supported enough, one thing is to hire them. Another thing is to retain them. Um, on that note, I'm, sort of, I'm going to sort of digress into something else. Um, there were six educators of color who were pushed out of the, the system in Boston Public Schools, sued, are still in, in, in dealing with lawyers and dealing with the current superintendent, trying to get redressed from how they were pushed out of the system. These are educated, experienced, uh, licensed, degreed teachers and leaders that were pushed out. Then things are silent. There was a, there was a lawyer that was hired by the school system to address this. It hasn't happened. These people have had their careers, their vocations, their callings disrupted, their um, salaries, their lifestyles disrupted, their families in some cases disrupted, and there's been nothing. There's been crickets. There's been crickets. And so um, people are shy about putting themselves out there and being a Malcolm X, being a Martin Luther King, being a Mel King, um, being a Ruth Batson, being a Jean McGuire. They're people too. They're normal people too who decided this is important. This is what I want to dedicate my life to. There are unsung and unspoken heroes every single day. The man that gets up to go to a job that's working him too hard to take care of his family and pay the bills and provide for his wife and kids, he's a hero. You may never see a plaque on Boston Common. The woman who has kids, who's got to work two and three jobs because women still don't get paid the same amount as men to be able to pay the bills, to keep a roof over their head and fighting for her kids, she's a hero. You may never know her name or you may know her name. She might be your mother. She might be your auntie. She might be your grandmother. I'll tell you one thing we can do, say thank you. Don't take it for granted. Just because they can do it and they've been doing it doesn't mean that you shouldn't appreciate them. Say thank you. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate you for doing this. Can I help you? Is this something that you need? I was talking to somebody earlier that the neighborhoods, whether it was black, white, or, or different, but I remember black neighborhoods, um, everybody was working. But then there was also you know, auntie or, or nana or grandmother in the windows, 
that were recognized in the neighborhood who would look out for the kids coming home from school because they knew your mother was working. They knew your father was working. And they could chastise you and correct you just like your, well, not quite the way your parents did. It was different, but they could actually put you in check. Baby, you know you're not supposed to be doing that. Going in the house and do your homework. And the community was cohesive. When someone didn't have money for rent, neighbors did a block party or they did a party, a rent party. And it wasn't about shading or making people feel bad. You gave the money to the family that needed it. You brought food to the family that needed it. If somebody in the family died, the neighborhood showed up and brought food and comfort and a lending ear. We could use a little bit of something like that. If you see a, a, a woman or a man and they look good, say so. Sister, you really, and hopefully it won't be interpreted as sexual harassment. You gotta say it the right way. But that's a really nice suit that you have on. Or you're looking really beautiful today. Or I like that smile. You don't know what that person is going through and they may need to hear those positive words. People that know me know I will pray anywhere at the drop of a hat. When I was on the radio, they called me Sister Living Proof because my life is proof that God is. He exists in my life. And so for those of you who are praying people, so what is a stranger and you don't know their name? Pray for them, it's free. It's not illegal, not here, not yet. Um, so that young, for the other caller that, that talked about how, um, what happened to prayer in the schools. Well, there's a historical record of what happened to prayer in the schools, but what's happening now? Um, <laughs> what's happening now? Are you praying for yourself? Are you praying for your family? Are you praying for your neighbor? Are you just talking to your neighbor? Are you talking to yourself in positive ways that can counteract some of the poison and some of the hatred and some of the vitriol that is out there? Um, and it takes more positive things to fight the negative things. You could hear, if you see somebody and they're really looking nice in a dress and everybody has told them they look nice in a dress, that one person says, oh girl, you shouldn't be wearing that dress. She'll remember that more than she'll remember the other people that said that. And so you need, we need, I know, I sound like I'm gonna have a rainbow coming over my head and the angels are gonna come out and stuff like that, but it's not that deep where you can give somebody a positive word, a smile, something good to say about them. Great job, oh, I really like how you did that. And be specific, don't be mamby-pamby and all fake. You know, I really like how you did that. Thank you for doing that for me. Thank you. For those of you who are doing spring cleaning, which I'm doing post-COVID and spring cleaning, I've been going through papers and seeing cards from my students that brought me to tears. Professor Hinton, you did this for me. Thank you. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have been here. I wouldn't do this. Da, da. And you forget about them sometimes. And so it helps to have a reminder that, you know, I believe there's some good in everybody. There's debates and people that are, you know, Hitler and serial killers and stuff like that, but somebody liked them. I mean, Hitler had a mistress. She liked them. Um, and some of these other people have got kids, so somebody liked them, maybe, for a minute. Um, but you need to like yourself. And tell yourself, if you're lonely or if you're by yourself, go in the mirror. Say, girl, you're looking good. I really like how that looks. And go out with a smile, even if you're on the phone. We were taught on radio that when you're talking, you smile. On radio. They can't see your face, but you can hear it. You can hear it on the phone which is why I don't really like text that much because you can't really, this interpretation with the emojis and all this other craziness, you know, and the capital letters and the not capital letters and the exclamation points. But I'm old school. You can text me, but I still like to hear your voice. I like to see your face. Um, 
there's a different energy that happens. Being in a room full of people, I'm looking forward to um, meetings opening up. I'm looking forward to being in the room. And by the way, it's really weird when you've been um, on Zoom for one or two years with people and then you meet them. Um, Cause you see this, right? You see this right here. And I've met people that I didn't recognize. <laughs> they were, I could see this. And then you form an impression and then you meet them and they're like, they're a midget or they're a giant. And so you're like, oh, but you recognize their voice. And so there's another level and I'm encouraging people. There's another level to get to know yourself and, and have a new normal because this is different. You've never been here before. And so be kind to yourself. Be kind to the people that you love. The Bible even tells you to be kind to your enemies. Pray for your enemies. I'm still working on that. Um, I'm, I'm really, it's not that much of a struggle as it used to be, but I, I ain't totally there yet. I'm still working on that. Um, if you can help somebody, help them. And you'll be surprised what comes back your way. This has been, I don't know what happened to my guest. Um, after I get off the air, I'm gonna say a prayer. I hope he's okay. Uh, I know he, I hope he's okay. <laughs> He'll contact me and let me know what's going on. I give a big shout out to anyone who has really supported me that talks to me on Facebook. I'm giving a shout out to the group of students that I met today from Beaver Country Day School and the Black Student Union who are working together on this endowment fund that's named after my dad. That is, um, we've already raised, our, our goal is to raise $250,000. We've already raised 160 in less than a year. And these are people from all walks of life that have gotten together to be able to make the world a better place. And so I encourage you to do that for yourself and to each other. My name is Sharon Hinton. This has been On Another Level. Hopefully you've learned something and thought about something really good. And you'll come back next time when we're here with my guests, somebody new and different to help you make your life and bring it to another level. God bless you and God bless each other. Take care. On this day, you'll have folks who would have never in their life marched with, agreed with, voted with, Biggest, biggest in the United States Congress. He had the audacity to send out a Dr. King quote. The march has begun every day. We rise like the sun. We fight till the battle is won. Can you hear the footsteps? Listen, cause we're coming like a gang on the street. So you better start running. It's time for some action now. Historical progression. Generations march in succession through 400 years. Hate, blood, sweat, and tears. And counting. The resistance is mounting. The preceding commentary does not necessarily reflect the views of the staff and management of WBCA or the Boston Neighborhood Network. If you would like to express another opinion, you can address your comments to the Boston Neighborhood Network at 3025 Washington Street, Boston, Mass., 02119. Attention WBCA LP 102.9 FM. If you would like to arrange a time for your own commentary, you can call WBCA at 617-708-3241 or email us at radio at bnntv.org.